0: Let's open our bibles to uh Mark chapter 7 today. Mark chapter 7 we are um we're going to finish the last part of Mark chapter 6. I actually saved it uh because it it complements Mark chapter 7, so I wanted to tackle the last few verses of uh chapter 6 as we uh in the same study as we uh launched into uh to chapter 7. So uh So we'll be uh, looking at a few chapters in in chapter 6 as we start. Uh, We're going to be talking today about the difference between religion and relationship. The difference between a relationship with the Lord and having a form of godliness, a religious practice, uh, which is uh, lacking uh, the intimacy and really the power that uh, a relationship brings story is told of a uh, family that lived in the Ozark Mountains. They were a very backwards family, not exposed to modern technology whatsoever, uh, had never been to the big city, did not own a television, didn't even own a car. So uh, really the things of the 20th and 21st centuries just were... Were uh, they were at a loss for? They really didn't understand life uh, apart from uh, from their mountain ways, and so uh, they made their way uh, at uh, a certain part of their life. They made their way into the big city, and you can imagine the exposure there. Going into the big city, how they were the sights, the sounds, the buildings, the cars, all of these things. Modern technology just blew their minds. And uh, the son came in found his dad standing inside one of these large buildings mesmerized at this this device right there in front of him these these uh metal doors that would open and close and so he's just there fascinated and as they're standing there together looking at this thing this 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 uh haggard old woman comes along and she goes into these doors and and the doors close and a few moments later the doors open and out walks this gorgeous drop-dead blonde And very quickly, without skipping a beat, the dad turns to his son and he says, Quick, go get your ma. (laughs) When we talk today about the difference between religion and relationship, uh, those who look to religious rules to make them right with God are kind of like this old Ozark man. Uh, that just as he hoped that this elevator system would magically transform his wife, uh, so too many today have the false hope, the false expectations that a religious system is going to magically transform them as well. They think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm right with God because I was baptized in the religious system of my church. Or I'm right before God because... I went to confession in my religious system at church, or my standing with God is right because, you know, I put money in the offering box, or, or, you know, I'm right with God because I pray before my meals, or, or whatever the case may be. Today we're gonna to look at two groups of people in our text. We're gonna look at those who find healing in Jesus through a relationship, and we're gonna look at those who find fault with Jesus, with, with Jesus through their religion. Uh so we'll we'll pick it up there in verse uh, 53 of Mark chapter 6 when they had crossed over they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there you'll recall uh Jesus and his disciples they had been out ministering and they were in they went into the region of Nazareth they had been soundly rejected Jesus had been in his hometown of Nazareth um he um, said, you know, a prophet is not without honor except for in his hometown. They saw him grow up. Uh, they had contempt for who he was, didn't want to believe that he was the, their awaited Messiah. They rejected him. And so Jesus, uh, wanting in his love and in his mercy to, to minister to these people in whatever way, shape, or form and, and preparing his disciples to go into uh, the, the, the region of uh, really ultimately all of the earth to proclaim the gospel in his absence, he, he took his disciples, he unleashed them, he sent them out two by two, uh, and uh, told them, hey, you, know, you, go, you go share the word, they rejected me, uh, you're strangers to them, maybe they'll receive it from you, so he sends them out. They come back, they're all excited Jesus is ministering to them But the text tells us they're exhausted uh, As ministry, only ministry can do Make you very exhausted And so, say, hey, you need a break, you need a rest Let's, let's go over to the other side And you, know, you remember we went through that They went over to the other side And they didn't get the break They didn't get the rest that they wanted Everybody mobbed them and came came out And, and so, Jesus again, showing these disciples No, this is what ministry is all about He saw them as sheep without a shepherd They saw them as a big old distress and getting them, you know, the thing that was coming between them and their vacation. Jesus saying, no, that's not what we're going to do here. We're going to minister to these people. We're going to love on these people. We're going to care for these people. And you guys, my disciples, are going to learn that this is what ministry is all about. It's not about you. It's about ministering God's love to his people and being a vessel that God can move in and work through. It's not, you're not the end to, to the means. You're, it's not about you. It's about laying your life down. Key verse in, the, in the Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus is trying to show His disciples. So... So there uh, he, he tells the guys, no, we're going to minister to them, and they do, and they uh, provide the, the, the fishes and the loaves, and we, we, we went through all that, hey, you feed them, hey, we don't have enough, well, well, bring whatever it is that you have, bring it to me, teaching them, you know, just trust in God, look to God, bring whatever it is that you have to offer in ministry, and God will touch it, he'll bless it, he'll use it, he's showing them all of these things, and then now the crowd responds to all this and says, whew, wow, you you gotta be our Messiah, and we need a guy like you around here, because they were looking for their Messiah to come as a conquering king, saw Jesus being, you know, that guy that came, and wow, he'll give us fish and chips, and we can, you know, have our king feed us and take care of us, and that's great, they wanted to make Jesus the king in their image and in their expectation not to allow Jesus to be king in in his will and in the way that he wanted to come, and so they were going to make him king by force, went through that last week and jesus said no it's not going to work this way sent his disciples away they had a little bit of an argument his disciples kind of going hey you know we we like what they're saying we think you know maybe you got a good base of people here. you got five thousand men here that want to make you their king it's a great powerful basis to support let's capitalize on this let's do this jesus says no we're not doing that here's you guys you guys are going to go and so he forces them to go to the other side, and there, as they go out, and he sends the crowd away. Jesus goes up on the mountaintop. He's praying. He's interceding for these guys. They encounter their hardship uh, there, and uh, and in encountering the hardship. Uh, Jesus comes out to them. He's been praying for them. He meets them right in the middle of their, their stress, right in the middle of their, their crisis, right in the middle of their trial. And, and, uh, he, you know, the, the whole story of, hey, Peter seeing him, hey, Jesus, if that's you, can I walk out to you? That all transpires in that instance. Jesus, uh, then bids him to come. And, and, you know, we talked about last week how as they kept their eyes on the Lord, as Peter kept his eyes on the Lord, he was okay. He could overcome the wind, the wave, the storms. But the moment he took his eyes off Jesus and started looking at his circumstances, he began to sink. He began to 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 be overwhelmed by his circumstances. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And of course, the Lord did, got into the boat. And immediately the text tells us they were at the other side. And so this is where our text picks up. As they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and they anchored there, verse 54, and when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. They ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry out uh, on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he entered into villages, cities, or country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him that they might just touch the hem of, Of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. CHAPTER seven verse one. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they Come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. (laughs) Sounds like like some great people you'd like to have around your house like once a week to sort of take care of things for you there. Anyway, verse 5, Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who cures, uh, or rather curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Verse 14, And when he had called all the multitudes to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And so he said to them, Are you you so thus without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And so we see two groups of people here in the text. We see those who find healing in Jesus through a relationship, and we find those who find fault with Jesus through a religion. Again, Jesus' story starts off at the end of chapter 6 there, crossing over uh, from, the, uh, from the other side, coming to the land of Gennesaret. The land of Gennesaret is a small but a very beautiful plain. Uh, it's uh, located between Capernaum and Magdala. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, it's a very fertile rain uh, plain. It, it, it produced a wide variety of crops. The area was fed by no less than four springs, uh, which provided just really a, an abundance of water uh, in an area that was a very fertile piece of land. And so the soil was so rich that it yielded uh, three crops per year. It was very valuable land. It was so valuable that every square inch of that plain was dedicated to farming. That's significant only because there were no towns, there were no settlements that were put there. They didn't want to take up one square inch of land with a house or whatever uh, that they could otherwise be using to produce crops. And so the people, they lived outside of this region and they would travel into the region uh, to to plant and to to grow the crops and so on. And so it would have been a, a somewhat isolated area. Given everything that we've seen up until this point, you know, it kind of makes sense that that, that is where they would go. Uh, remember, these guys are tired. They've been ministering nonstop. Uh, and the only break that they've had is the time in the boat. And we know just leading up to this that they were up, you know, for hours and hours rowing against the wind out there just slaving uh, in, in, in the, the, the boat to get across. And so, you know, it, it makes sense that they would go here. Jesus, you know, giving them uh, this opportunity to go to a desolate place. Again, looking for that, that coveted place of rest. Uh, but once again, you know, we read the text and the people, the second that Jesus arrives there, they, they recognize who he is and they, once again, they just begin mobbing him, flocking to him. And once again, Jesus begins to minister to these people. Now, notice in verse 56 something very significant here. It says, uh, whenever he entered into villages, uh, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him, listen, that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Where do you think they got this? That they might just touch the hem of his garment. Does that sound familiar to you? You remember back in Mark chapter 5 when we were looking at the woman with the issue of blood? And here there was this woman who had had this issue of blood years and years and years. Just this affliction. And she reasoned in her heart that if I can only touch his clothes, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I might be made well. And you'll recall that that's exactly what happened. She reached out, she touched Jesus in the crowd, and Jesus stopped right there. uh, and, And he said, who touched me? And his disciples incredulously are like, well, who didn't touch you? You know, that's a better question kind of thing. And, and so, no, someone touched me. He turned around he t- ministered to this woman. And in Mark five thirty four, Jesus said this to this woman. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Clearly, this woman had gone out and she had boldly proclaimed her testimony. Clearly, that's what's transpired here. A very important thing here as we're contrasting this, this whole notion of relationship with Jesus versus a religion. And we're going to be looking more at, at the religion here as we break down chapter 7. But it's set up so perfectly as we look here just at these, these few verses at the end of Mark chapter 6 to see what the difference a, an intimate relationship with Jesus makes. Because here, this woman had this intimate relationship with the Lord in the sense that she said, I, I believe that he's the Christ. I believe that if I could only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she put herself totally out there, completely by faith, completely on the line, just to reach out and to touch the Lord. And he made her well, and now she's... she's She's intimately connected with him. She's related to Jesus, not on the basis of, of a religious system, not on the basis of, you know, if, if, I, if I say so many prayers, if I, if I just say, you know, ten Hail Marys and five Our Fathers, and if I, if I just, like, walk, you know, a certain distance, maybe on, on, in bare feet over broken glass and, and crawl through, you know, whatever, or if I just, you know, give enough or tithe enough. or It wasn't based on any of that. This woman just simply said, I believe that he is the Messiah, and I believe that he can, fit, can heal me, and I believe that all I need to do is to come to him and just to touch him. And so as she related to Jesus in that way, and as he healed her, and now the other half of relationship, as she took that encounter with the Lord, and now she brought that relational experience from from her her Messiah and how he healed her, as she brought that to the other people in her life, the people that, that she would interact with, the people that she would do life with. And she would just begin to share and boldly proclaim with everybody her testimony. Hey, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. And as this woman began to share her testimony, it had a profound impact on the people around her. You discovered that your testimony is a very powerful thing. People cannot dispute your testimony. I, I've, I've told the story before, many of you have probably heard me tell it. I'm going to tell it again. Um, for years, as I was working at the fire department, uh, and and uh, there towards the very end of it, it was my job I was passionate about. It. I loved it. From the time I was a little kid watching Johnny and Roy on TV, I wanted to be a, a, a paramedic fireman, and I was living the dream, man. It was where I wanted to be. But but as God began to get a hold of my heart and as he began to bring me into ministry the last few years, I couldn't get out of the fire service quick enough. It's crazy. Guys would slit their own mom's throats to get my job and I wanted to, to go do full-time ministry. And so, you know, there this is all happening and I'm in like the last year and we'd get the board together and we'd meet and we'd look at the finances. Is it happening yet? Is You know, the church is growing. Is it is it time for me to leave? The, no, it's not time to leave. You got to stay. Okay. <clears throat> you know, and so there... I'm I'm in that place, that, that limbo land of ministries happening, but again, I've got to go, you know, 72 hours a week, I've got to go be paramedic fireman. and So I'm doing this, and, and my heart is over here, but God's got me there, and I would question God. I'm like, God, why? Why do you have me here when so clearly you're building this church over here? Why is it that you're leaving me here when you're, when, when I, you and I both know, God, that I'm going to spend my life full time in ministry, so why don't you just get on with it, for crying out loud. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Sell them. Give us the money. Let me come on staff. Whatever. And uh, God's like, no, you're just going to have to wait on me. So I'm in that limbo time. I'm waiting. During that time, meet a guy at the fire department. His name's Roger. And Roger, there he is now. <laughs> And uh, and so Roger, man, this this guy, he's having he's having his struggles, man. He's got his demons in his life that he's fighting, uh, and and this could be a very long story. It already is. I'll I'll shorten it up, but but uh, Roger, I'm just ministering to him and, and sharing the gospel with him and just trying to to share my testimony with him. And uh, and so you know we I end up finally, God provides in such a way that I I am able to resign from the fire department and come on staff full-time at the church, and Roger starts attending the church. And every Sunday, and I know Roger hasn't made a commitment to the Lord, and every Sunday, I would go and I would say, Roger, dude, today's your day. You heard the word, man. Are you ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? And every day, every Sunday, he'd be like, no, I'm not ready yet. so one day I have Roger. We, we get you know have some property. We need it to be uh, you know plowed and and, and all the weeds of, you know knocked down. And he says I got a tractor. I'll do it for you. He's out there. It's blazing hot. I go out to bring him lunch, and he ends up uh, as you know the circumstances. We got to go get a tire from his house. Hey, get in my car. He gets in my car. First words out of his mouth. Kid you not. He says Ted, I want what you have. Now, again, bear in mind, he gets in my car. I'm driving a car that my single mother, uh, sister-in-law gave to me uh, with no air conditioning. <laughs> and it's about 150 degrees outside. And we're all both beat red. And I'm like, what do I have that you could possibly want? He says, man, you've got joy. You've got peace. Dude, look at you. You're happy. It's, but we're melting in this car. You've got a smile on your face. You're coming out here just to to, to minister to me and, and giving me opportunities to help to help you guys. And he says you just you've got peace, you've got love, you got I want that. Now let me tell you that Roger didn't come to that place by me sitting down saying Roger your life is jacked up. Let me show you where your life is jacked up. Let me show you what you've done wrong. And me beat, taking my Bible out and beating him over the head with it. Roger came to that place as I lived out my faith. And as as I just boldly proclaimed my testimony. Bro, let me just tell you how good Jesus is. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. And I thought that I wasn't getting through to Roger. I thought that he would never come to the place where he would surrender his life to the Lord. And yet that day, in a dusty, dirty, blazing hot field, Roger dropped down to his knees and he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, the only reason that happened was because God used relationship to impact Roger. I had a relationship with the Lord that was intimate and that was, that was a desperate, uh, you know, Lord, I need you. You got to show up. It was like this woman, just if I can just touch the hem of his garment type of relationship. It wasn't rules and regulations and, and all of those things that religion is. It was an intimate relationship with the Lord. And as I took that relationship and then I then related to Roger and to the, to the men and women that were around me, God took that and he used that. And I want to tell you that God wants to do the same in your life. There are people, you have Rogers in your life, that only you can reach. God's placed them strategically in your circle of influence. And God wants you to use you to minister to people and, and just minister His love and His grace and His mercy. Yes, He has a righteous standard. And yes, there's, there's people that are living train wreck lives and that need to change a, a boatload of what they're doing. But but they're not going to be inspired to change based on you proclaiming, uh, you know, some sort of a, a, a rules, sort of righteousness, kind of religious sort of thing. No, God's going to use you relationally to connect with them. I'm not saying that you discount God's standard. No, God's standard remains God's standard. And God will lovingly give you the opportunities in your day and in your interaction with them to proclaim the good news of the gospel. To maybe point out some of the things in their life that ain't working so well for them uh and, and that are in, in in opposition to what God wants to do. But He's going to do it through a relationship. You see, ideally as the people around you hear your testimony and they watch your life, they'll be persuaded to follow your example. It's not always the case, not everybody in your life is going to believe, not everybody is going to be persuaded by your testimony, but the Bible makes it very clear that if people are going to believe, listen, it's going to be through our testimony. Think about that. If people are going to believe, it's going to be through your testimony and through my testimony. That's exactly what the Bible teaches uh, in Revelation twelve eleven says there that we overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and our testimony. By the work that Jesus has done and by our testimony of the proclamation of how he has moved and worked in our life. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, key verse in the book of Acts, talking to his disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Witnesses to me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What is a witness? It's somebody who shares what God has done in their life. It's just a witness, a witness just testifies to what they've seen. A witness doesn't have to, to tell the, the cop, well, now the car was traveling at 37 miles an hour, and this guy failed to yield, and, and this is the technical reasons. No, the guy says, yeah, that guy, he was driving this way, it didn't look like he stopped at the stop sign, that guy was here and he plowed into him or whatever the case may be. A witness just doesn't have to explain the whys. The witness doesn't have to figure out all the, the intricacies of the details. Just have to say, look, here's what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is, this is just my, my two cents worth about how this happened in, in my life and how this involved me. And that's what we do in our faith. Now, it's important to note that our testimony includes both what we say and what we do. They have to line up. They have to match up. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that we are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, you, you can't say one thing and do another. Have you, have you discovered that? Do you know people like that? What do we call them? We call them hypocrites. They're all over the place. Um, <laughs> there's, you know... It, it's just amazing to me. We we see uh, hypocrites throughout, you know, the 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 our life. There's there's all instances of hypocrisy. I was driving down uh, Temecula Parkway uh, a couple of months ago, and this guy cut me off, and then he flipped me off like it's my fault that he cut me off. And sure enough, on his bumper, he has a bumper sticker that says "Jesus loves you." <laughs> the man that just. Cut me off and flip me off. I'm like, wow, does he really? Wow, thank you so much for that. Mahatma Gandhi was once asked what he thought about Jesus Christ. And he said this, he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You know, our faith and our testimony needs to work together. And I want to ask you the question today, what is your faith? What is your testimony? Do you inspire others to seek out, to seek after Jesus by the faith that you hold and by the faith that you profess through not just your words, but through your actions? You've heard that poem. You're writing the gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do, by the words that you say. And people read what you write, whether it's faithless or true. What's the gospel according to you? And so, the, this is so important that, that, like we see here in, in Mark, the tail end of Mark chapter 6, these people coming to Jesus, tugging at his, at his robe, just saying, If I can just touch him, I'll be healed. Why? Because well, they heard the testimony of a woman who said, Let me tell you about my encounter with the Lord. And they knew her, they saw her, they saw that her life had been changed by Jesus Christ. Can people see that your life has been changed by Jesus Christ? What is your testimony? Well, it's a great setup here as we enter into Acts or to uh, Mark chapter seven, because here we see that the religious leaders now they come on the scene, and and it it tells us there. Well, let's read it together. First couple of verses it says then the Pharisees, some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, and now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with. Defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Now, this is on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus was continuing to heal the multitudes. Remember, it's the Passover season. People now traveling into Jerusalem by the multitudes there to celebrate the Passover. And no doubt, as they're going in, they're talking about Jesus. Right As they're, they're entering in, they're talking about their would-be king and all of the things that he's doing. And certainly the whole region would have been buzzing about the miraculous works of Jesus. And so on the heels of this miraculous work and this wonderful thing and this beautiful picture of a woman who exercises her faith and who just, just boldly proclaims about the benefits of her relationship with the Lord and, and, and how, how people are moved by that relationship into their own intimate, personal relationship. Now on the heels of that, we see the religious leaders coming on the scene. They're coming not to relate to Jesus. They're coming to find fault with Jesus. These are legalists. Legalists haven't changed in 2,000 years uh, what they're about today is what they were about then. They're all about finding fault. They're about a religious system and rules and regulations. They're not about relating to Jesus in any way, shape, or form. The basis of their fault finding is their value, uh, the, uh, their traditions, the, the, the value that they placed on their own traditions more than the traditions of God's Word. Uh, they're looking to protect their traditions at all costs. And one of their traditions emphasized here included the washing of hands. Look at verse 3. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, <clears throat> holding the tradition of the elders. Uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Uh, And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, coffer vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that is Jesus, why do your disciples uh, not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Now we're not talking about dirty hands here. We're not talking about just, you know... Your hands are dirty. Go wash them. That's mothers that talk about that, right? Your, your hands are dirty. Go wash them. You can't. You, this isn't about that. This is about ceremonially unclean hands. It's a, it's a concept that's developed uh, from a passage in Exodus chapter thirty, verses nineteen through twenty-one, um, where it talks there about the priests uh, are to wash their hands ceremonially, ceremonially in the labor before they officiated the ceremony in the tabernacle. And from that one scripture, a whole system of tradition developed. It began with uh, the Midrash. The Midrash was an oral tradition that uh, sort of uh, surrounded the word of God uh, to protect it. Uh, it, 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 The Midrash was this complicated thing. It was sort of hard to understand. So then they came up with the Mishnah. The Mishnah uh, was written to help the, the Jews understand the Midrash, which was designed to protect the word. Then, because the Midrash and the Mishnah were all, both of them together hard to understand, uh, they came up with the Gemara. Uh, Gemara was that which helped to understand the Mishnah, which helps to understand the Midrash, which helped to understand the word of God. Finally, all of this was so complicated and so uh, involved, they finally, to to help sort of more clarify things, they came up with the Talmud. The Talmud uh, was not a condensed version. It was 523 books, 22 volumes in all, and it was all designed to, to have all of these things surrounding the Word of God to help the Jews to keep the Word of God. All of that to understand and protect six hundred and twenty three precepts that they had pulled out of the law saying, OK, we understand that this is God's word. We understand that these are the Ten Commandments, but these are six hundred and twenty three precepts that we've sort of pulled out of this thinking that we need to to, to do and to, to keep in order to be right with God. And, and again, that's the whole point. Stay with me there. The whole deal here is they're setting up a system of rules and regulations and and, and traditions, and you got to do this and you got to do that, all to earn and maintain a right standing with God. The very antithesis of what God gave us His law for in the first place, isn't it? We read in Scripture that God gave us the Old Testament, the law, so that we will learn that we can't keep the law. The whole point of, of God's law is to show you and me our need for Jesus Christ. So that when we try and keep the law, we go, wow, I can't do that, God. I need help. And he says, oh, thank you so much for asking for help. Here's my son. And I have, I'm, I'm sending him to be your savior. You, you can't get there from here. You, you're sinful. You're wicked. That's the whole idea. But, but they didn't get it. They said, oh, we got to keep this. And they started putting all of these things in line to try and keep the law. Now, all of that here, as I said, to protect the 623 precepts that they'd pulled out of Scripture, the whole idea being that they wanted to protect and preserve the sanctity of the Word of God. And the irony is, is that somewhere along the way, their traditions that they developed to protect the Word of God ultimately became more important to them than the law itself, and we see this in our own life don 't we? We see people that they put all these these rules and regulations on their relationship with God, and worst of all, they project those rules and relation, or those rules and regulations on other people and now all of a sudden, well, this is what I do to be righteous, and you don 't do the things that I think that and, and by the way, in truth they don 't even do what they think that they should do but it 's a lot easier for them to to project those rules and those regulations onto other people. And this is where legalism comes from. And we see it happening in our world uh, all over. And so, it had gotten so bad that the Mishnah said, quote, to transgress the oral tradition was greater sin than to transgress the law. They were saying, look, the the things that we have come up with to, to protect the word of God If you break the things that we came up with, that's worse than breaking the word of the Bible. That's exactly what they said. Not only that, listen, tradition held that to slight hand-washing was a crime worthy of death. Uh, Tradition said that it was better to walk four miles to wash than to eat with unwashed hands. I'd just skip the meal altogether, but that's me. Uh, The tradition went so far as to say that the one who neglected washing hands was as guilty as a murderer. That's what their tradition said. Now, this is completely unbiblical. It's not what the Bible teaches, and yet it's the cause of their division with Jesus. Tradition. Tradition was all important to them. It means to hand down, and unfortunately what they handed down was a religious system that left out a relationship with Jesus entirely. That's the whole point. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. Jesus chastised the Pharisees uh, of his day in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 23-24. He said, you you know, he's telling them, look, you're all wrapped up in your traditions and, and all of the things, all the religious things that you do, And in the process, you're missing me. He said to them, he told them this. He goes, you go through great lengths. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. In other words, he's saying, look, you're so focused on things that don't matter. You're missing the huge billboard thing that does matter. And and so along about this same time, a scribe came to Jesus. And he asked him, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law? You remember what Jesus said, right? He said, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he said, the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And then he went on, he said something very bold. He said, on these two commandments, hinge all the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus saying the entire book is summed up, love God, love others. And these religious leaders had completely missed that altogether, uh, rather than rejoicing about the people who are coming to the Lord in in Mark chapter six, as we read, and all these people coming and they're being healed and everything's great, and these religious leaders come down, they make the trip all the way from Jerusalem, and what what happens? What are they making the trip? What are they doing to find fault? With Jesus. That's what religion always does. It doesn't celebrate what God's doing. It doesn't celebrate, God, I love you and I love your people and I love what you're doing in the lives of your people. No, it says, your people aren't washing their hands. What's wrong with you? You, And you come to find fault. They confronted Jesus about it. And Jesus answered them. And he he says to them, Hang on a second. Yeah, he answers them, verse 6. And he says to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice he goes on, he, he, he says, For laying aside the commandment of God, and what is the commandment of God? To love to love God, to love his people, and you lay all that aside, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and of cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God to love, to love God, to love his people, that you may keep your tradition. Keeping your traditions are more important to you than loving God and loving his people. Verse 10, he says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Fifth commandment. One of, the ten, one of the big ten, right? Honor your father and mother. And he said, and the Lord says, hey, Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And he, he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But verse 11, he says, But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God, then you no longer uh, let him... Uh, do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. See, a, a large a practice during this time was you have the responsibility to honor your parents, to take care of your parents, to provide for your parents. And, and so a lot of times what people were doing is they would say, you know, oh, here's their mom and dad in need, and they would say, oh, you know, no, what I have, it's it's dedicated to God. I'd love to help you out, Mom and Dad, but you know, all I have, it's dedicated for the Lord's work. And so they would not help their mother and father in in the needs that they had. Now, the thing was, is they they weren't talking about, oh well, you know that I I I'm going to give that to the Lord right now. It's not like they had, you know, oh, I've got my tithe here and and I, I'm going to give my tithe to the Lord right now. No, what they were talking about was, you know, all of my stuff after I die, it's dedicated to the Lord. And so they were selfishly just not wanting to to help their parents. Jesus is saying, and they would hide behind this this thing about, oh, it's dedicated to God. And so therefore, if I give it to you, I'm sliding God. And Jesus is like, you're getting the whole thing backwards. That's not what it's all about. Uh, And so verse 14 said, when he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me everyone and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. Now, again, huge difference in what the actions that are born out of relationship versus the actions that are born out of religion. Uh, You know, here, this woman in her relationship back in chapter 6, she's going out telling everybody about Jesus. They're all coming to Jesus. These guys know all that they're doing, these rules, these regulations, these things, these systems that they're putting in place, complete difference. They're not... bringing people to Jesus. They're not inspiring people to go to Jesus. Rather, they're going to Jesus and dividing and saying, oh, this is horrible. Your people aren't washing their hands. And there's a complete disconnect there. There's a complete, uh, they go to great lengths. They travel all the way from Jerusalem. Speaking to the religious leaders of his day, Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel, Matthew twenty-three fifteen. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win Over one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus' whole point here is saying, look, your religious system is whacked. It's screwed up, and, and and all it's doing is creating a bunch of legalists who aren't getting close to God, and they're worse yet, they're not letting anybody else get close to God either. And that's a problem, and that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 17. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And so he said to them, are you thus without understanding? Do you not perceive that whenever or whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. He says, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. Here's the deal. The disciples are struggling to understand the parable that he told. The parable that he told is in verse 15. He says, there's nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. That was his parable that he told. They're like, we don't get it. So Jesus basically is clarifying it for them here, and this is what brings the whole lesson. This is what it's all about. Uh, he says, look, the problem isn't about you being defiled. So you guys are wigging out about, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees are wigging out about you guys not washing your hands. And, and the idea is, well, gosh, you go into the marketplace and, and you touch money and, and, you know, maybe a Gentile had had that money. And so now, you know, when you touch it, you're going to be defiled. Uh, and they went to great lengths. They would pull their robes in tightly around them when they would walk through the marketplaces because they didn't want their robe to brush up a Gentile because, oh, he's unclean. He's a sinner. We need to be holy. We need to be righteous. We need to be pure. And, we, and there's, there's Christians like that today, right? They can't go into the world... Without this thought of, oh gosh, don't touch me, you might rub off on me. I can't, I can't get near you because you're a sinner. Well, okay, if you're an alcoholic, stay out of the bar. But for crying out loud, we're called to be salt and light, we're called to be witnesses, we're, we're called to, to go into all the world uh, and make disciples, right? That means, you know, you're not, you're not just going to say, okay, I'm going to live in my little Christian bubble and I'm going to go to the Christian bookstore and I'm going to go to the Christian coffee shop and I'm going to go to my church and I'm just going to, and just everybody stay away from me and you live in your own little bubble. No. We're called to be salt and light and to go out and minister to the gospel, to people. And we see people uh, in our interaction, in our days, Christians who are afraid to go into the world. Greg Laurie said this. He goes, the last time I checked, you actually have to go into the field to reap a harvest. And so we need to have the attitude that yes, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm called to be separated from the world. Yes, the Bible says come out from among them and be separate. But having God impacted my life and having encountered a relationship with God, I can't be afraid that the world's going to get me dirty. I need to go into the world and be salt and light and boldly proclaim the word of God. I need to love people enough that I go and I share my testimony with them. I need to love people enough that if I go to, you know, a birthday party for someone and there's Christians and non-Christians there that the non-Christians don't perceive me as being stuck up or so weird that they can't relate to me. No, I need to relate to the people so that they can see, wow, that, that Jesus is real. And really, look at the way he's impacted that guy. That's what we're called to be. And so that's what Jesus is saying in this parable. He goes, look. You know, it's not about you got to wash your hands 50 times so that you don't get any sin inside you. There's sin already inside you. It's not, you know, don't be so afraid to interact with the world that you're going to be defiled by them. You're already defiled. That's his point. He's saying, you're all a piece of work. You need Jesus. They need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus Christ. And as we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, and as we go and live out our faith, we can't be afraid of the world making us dirty. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of this entire text. Is that you would understand, listen, your only hope is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your only, the only hope for your friends is to see Jesus Christ and for them to have their own relationship with Christ and they're going to encounter Christ through you, through the life that you live. The relationship that you have with your Lord and as you lovingly impart that relationship to the people that he's placed strategically in your circle of influence, that's what it's all about. And I'll close with this. My friend Roger never would come to the Lord based on a fiery preaching sermon. I didn't didn't win Roger to the Lord by pointing out all of his sin, by, by beating him over the head with my Bible. I won Roger over to the Lord by living my life in faith before him and having that strategic opportunity for him to say, I want what you have. What you have is real, and I want that. Had I been like these Pharisees who all washing and were concerned about who I'm going to interact with, I would never have loved Roger enough. Would never have been connected in that circle of influence to be able to share the gospel with him. You all have a Roger in your life. God wants each one of us to, to take our faith, to live it out before an unbelieving world, so that they could see there's something different about us. And rather than washing and staying sterile and away from them and saying, get away from me, I don't want you to touch me. No, we need to love the people in our life enough that we would interact with them so that they would see Jesus. Let your light so shine before men, Jesus said, they may see your good works. Glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, that in all the things in our lives, Lord, you are faithful And we thank you, Lord, for just showing us just the stark contrast between religious leaders and just a woman who, Lord, was just someone really defiled in her own way. She was unclean. She had an issue of blood for years and years. Nobody would touch her because that would make them unclean. And yet she came to you by faith. Because she came to you by faith and because she lived her faith out and proclaimed, Lord, her testimony. Jesus touched me. Jesus saved me. Jesus made me right and healed and whole. Now, Lord, she would influence the people in her life to seek you out as well. God, I pray you'd make us to be that way, that we wouldn't be like these Pharisees who just come to find fault, but rather, Lord, that we would be those that would live out our faith in, in, our, our, our faith in you, Pro- boldly proclaim, Lord, you love me. Because you love me, I can go forth into the world. and, Lord, that people would see that and be ministered to by it. As we partake of communion today, Lord, we thank you so much for this. This bread, symbolic of your body, which was broken for us. This juice, symbolic of your blood, which was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, because you loved us so much that you came and you gave. And you suffered and you died. And you said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God, as we partake of communion, I pray that indeed we would remember what you've done for us. As you've commanded, as we examine our own lives in this day, that, Lord, it would be once again that time for us to say, Lord, I want to walk in obedience with you. And in light of the word today, I pray also that it would inspire us today, Lord, as we go forth. Live out our faith and love the people around us just the way that you did. Father, we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.